The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In October of 1965, hundreds of thousands of Americans opened a book and started to read the following. Chapter 1. Nightmare. When my mother was pregnant with me, she told me later, a party of hooded Ku Klux Klan riders galloped up to our home in Omaha, Nebraska one night. Surrounding the house, brandishing their shotguns and rifles, they shouted for my father to come out. My mother went to the front door and opened it. Standing where they could see her pregnant condition, she told them that she was alone with her three small children and that my father was away preaching in Milwaukee. The Klansmen shouted threats and warnings at her that we had better get out of town because, quote, the good Christian white people, end quote, were not going to stand for my father's spreading trouble among the good Negroes of Omaha with the back-to-Africa preachings of Marcus Garvey. My father, the Reverend Earl Little, was a Baptist minister, a dedicated organizer for Marcus Aurelius Garvey's UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association. With the help of such disciples as my father, Garvey, from his headquarters in New York City's Harlem, was raising the banner of black race purity and exhorting the Negro masses to return to their ancestral African homeland a cause which had made Garvey the most controversial black man on earth. Still shouting threats, the Klansmen finally spurred their horses and galloped around the house, shattering every window pane with their gun butts. Then they rode off into the night, their torches flaring as suddenly as they had come. My father was enraged when he returned. He decided to wait until I was born, which would be soon, and then the family would move. I am not sure why he made this decision, for he was not a frightened Negro, as most then were, and many still are today. My father was a big, six-foot-four, very black man. He had only one eye. How he had lost the other one, I have never known. He was from Reynolds, Georgia, where he had left school after the third or maybe fourth grade. He believed as did Marcus Garvey, that freedom, independence, and self-respect could never be achieved by the Negro in America, and that therefore the Negro should leave America to the white man and return to his African land of origin. Among the reasons my father had decided to risk and dedicate his life to help disseminate this philosophy among his people was that he had seen four of his six brothers die by violence, three of them killed by white men, including one by lynching. What my father could not know then was that of the remaining three, including himself, only one, my Uncle Jim, would die in bed of natural causes. Northern white police were later to shoot my Uncle Oscar, and my father was finally himself to die by the white man's hands. It has always been my belief that I, too, will die by violence. I have done all that I can to be prepared. End quote. Those are the words of Malcolm X, the magnetic Muslim minister and human rights activist who had in fact already died in violent circumstances earlier that year. He left behind his wife and children, his example as a supporter of black nationalism, 
the admiration and at times uneasy support of millions of followers, and this book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to journalist Alex Haley, who himself later became even more famous as the author of the book Roots. It's an astonishing book, full of sharp observations and even sharper assertions, riveting in its tale of a black man from Michigan who makes his way in mid-20th century America to Boston and New York, who lives as a street hustler, goes to prison, finds a community in the nation of Islam, and puts his skills as a speaker and persuader to good service, ascending like a rocket before his final explosive end. For Americans who lived through the 60s, there were books like this, books that changed people's lives. Adults who watched a little television but had plenty of time for books, too. It was an adult population full of readers who absorbed novels and even poetry and who read magazines and who sought out books not because they were easy, but because they were provocative. I didn't live through the 60s. I came along later. But I remember that generation of people. They were my parents and the parents of my friends. They went to school board meetings and village meetings and stayed until the end. They worked to make the world better where they could. They were open to ideas. Cynicism and the paralysis of polarity had not yet frozen them in place. And so, in the 60s, we got books like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which awoke people to the dangers of pesticides and their overuse, and books like The Autobiography of Malcolm X, which took an unflinching look at the lies and limitations of the American dream. Here were places where people could do better. It starts with words and translates, hopefully, into actions. But what those actions should be is not necessarily easy to see in hindsight, let alone when you're sitting in the present and hoping to change the future. We're talking to someone who is in that position today. Dr. Ray Wingrant is a wildlife biologist who is sounding the alarm. Things are not okay. The center cannot hold. The status should not stop at quo. How do we go forward? We start with words and look for action. We'll talk to Dr. Wynne Grant about her own journey, how these books of the 60s helped a child born in the 80s to become who she is today, and about how all of us can learn, grow, and bring about improvements to our burning world. Dr. Ray Wynne Grant, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Oh, this is an honor to have this guest today, Dr. Ray Wingrant, wildlife ecologist, host of the podcast Going Wild. And she would like to appear on the history of literature. Am I interested? Yes, please. But what to talk about? So I suggest, well, is there a classic work of literature that Dr. Wingrant might like to discuss? And... The word comes back. There are two, Autobiography of Malcolm X and Silent Spring. And I think, perfect, 
and perfect. I can see exactly how this will fit. There are two books with a rich legacy and two books worth exploring in some depth. We'll have that in a moment. But first, let me share an email from our friends who kindly requested a birthday greeting earlier this month. Do you remember that from a week or two ago? This was David who wanted to surprise his girlfriend, Hannah, with a birthday greeting here on the History of Literature podcast. And he pointed out that it was a special birthday for her as she was turning 26 on October 13th. It was a doubling of the date, which is pretty nice. Except what if you were born on the first of the month? I suppose you're yawning now. Ho-hum, David. This happens every year. (laughs) And if you're born on the 31st, you feel kind of left out. 62, you'll be able to fire off this cannon and, and hope to hang on to 93. You don't get many shots at it. It seems a little unfair to make this a thing, David. But he made it a thing. He noticed it. It's a thing for Hannah this year, or at least it's a thing for David's affectionate reflection. And so I did wish Hannah a happy doubled birthday. I always worry about these things how they're going to go, how they'll land, since I'm not around to see it. I'm not there to make sure that she hears it on time, for example, or I'm not there to read the room as I'm prattling on to to get the sense that what I'm saying is all wrong. So David, very kindly, let me know how things went. Here's his, and he's letting me share this email too. Here's how it goes. Jack. What a wonderful birthday wish. Hannah loved it. She sent me an all-caps text message yesterday morning, and we listened together yesterday evening. Your voice was the soundtrack to an evening of gifts, fresh-baked pie, and rambunctious kittens. Hannah rescued a mother and her four kittens last week. It was a fun night made all the more so by your kind words and reading of Poe's tale of spiraling madness. In October shivers, David. Ooh, okay, there we go. What a day. What a nice day. I'm glad to be in the mix. Maybe a a pinch of salt thrown into the batter. Not something you'd notice, but there is part of the blend. Hannah is a rescuer of kittens. Now, I feel like wishing her a happy birthday might not have been enough. I should have sent a, a card and a gift, maybe some, some bottles of milk, something to help. I guess that's what David was there to supply. So thank you, David and Hannah. I hope you enjoyed your pie and are enjoying the rambunctious kittens. I'm sure the mother is greatly relieved to have your assistance in making sure those little bundles are okay. I hope the kittens... We're in bed, safely tucked in, before we turn to Edgar and the telltale heart. That might have been a little much for them. There was little ears. Thank goodness we didn't do the black cat this year. That's in our archive, by the way. I think we did it last year or the year before. That might have been a little too much for David and Hannah and those kittens. Okay, so here's what we'll do. We'll take our first break. Then I'm going to give you some background of Malcolm X and Rachel Carson, and then we will hear from another rescue, rescuer of felines and other carnivores, larger ones than kittens, Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, all coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little in May of 1925. After his father was killed and his mother was eventually hospitalized, two painful and formative experiences that it took him a lifetime to process, young Malcolm was sent to a series of foster homes and relatives. He was an excellent student, but he dropped out in high school after a teacher told him that practicing law was not realistic for someone of his color. That had been his dream. When you read the autobiography, so much jumps out. So much injustice. So much of the way the world seemed bent against him and his family. His father was almost certainly killed by racists, although the death was ruled a suicide, which meant that the life insurance company could refuse to pay. A black activist who's been targeted and hounded by a well-known racist group this is the insurance company narrative, then beats himself, beats him, himself up, and then puts himself on the streetcar tracks to be run over. Well, it's not hard to see where the ruling of suicide was a convenient lie. The result was to break the family. The mother required hospitalization, and the family needed to be, all the siblings were separated, sent to different homes. That jumps out. But the moment in school, this is what I was getting to, the moment in school where the teacher, who was probably trying to be helpful, tells Malcolm that he'd be better off learning a trade instead of pursuing the law is another such moment. Malcolm's the sharpest one in class. He knows it. The class knows it. And yet he's being told that the others in the classroom have options that he doesn't. The game is clearly rigged. And so, in a rigged game, Malcolm Little starts playing angles. He heads to Boston and starts to dabble in street crime. He gets a job on the railroad and winds up in Harlem, where he really gets into crime, running the numbers, robberies, some drug dealing, some pimping. That brain and a kind of fearlessness, a recklessness of someone who has nothing to lose, push him forward. He gets some odd jobs, too, here and there, but he always finds shortcuts. He's also learning a whole new way of life in Harlem with dances and fashion and hair and people, music. Started in Boston, people walking the straight and narrow, people taking a more angular approach. White people coming in and out, sometimes seeking thrills, sometimes trying to help, 
often trying to profit or punish. There's an incredible coincidence where Malcolm and another dishwasher both have reddish hair, and so they're given the nicknames Chicago Red and Detroit Red to tell them apart. Detroit Red winds up becoming Malcolm X. Chicago Red later becomes well-known as the comedian Red Fox of Sanford and Son fame. Malcolm gets himself out of World War II by faking some mental problems. Then his crimes escalate, and he winds up getting arrested and sentenced to 10 years in jail. He's already risen and fallen, overcome a huge past, faced obstacles, seen the underbelly of society, seen the highs and lows of being a black man in America. And at this point, he is 20 years old. In prison, he educates that mind of his, reading as much as he can, copying out the dictionary, becoming self-disciplined. He also starts to follow the teachings of the Nation of Islam, then a fairly new religious movement centered on black self-reliance and led by Elijah Muhammad. He wrote a letter to Elijah Muhammad, who wrote back with some advice. He also wrote a letter to President Truman that led the FBI to open a file on him. And... He kept learning. He replaced his name Little, which symbolized for him the slave master name imposed upon his ancestors with an X to symbolize the true African name that he might never know. After his release, his fame and position within the nation of Islam grew. He had those same skills that had led him to want to be a lawyer. The fast mind, the taste for argument and persuasion, the rhetorical gifts. He was also charismatic, mesmerizingly handsome, it was said. He was tall and powerful. He commanded a crowd. And now, thanks to the rigors of prison and the teachings of the Nation of Islam, he was also self-disciplined. Within a few years, people were attending his talks in large numbers. By the time he was 32, he responded to an incident of police brutality by showing up at the police station with a crowd of followers growing from 500 to 4,000. It's an unforgettable scene in the film, the Malcolm X film, by, directed by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington. Denzel, who channels Mike Malcolm X, commands the crowd with a hand signal. They silently leave upon his order. No man should have that much power, says one officer to another. A couple of face-offs were in Malcolm X's future, thanks to this growing amount of power. Obviously, a face-off with the white establishment was inevitable. To the, the police officer's comments, you could reasonably add the phrase, especially a black man. The NYPD put him under surveillance and sent undercover officers to infiltrate the Nation of Islam. Keep tabs on him. His second confrontation was to be with the Nation of Islam itself and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm X was becoming too big. On the one hand, it was good for that nation. Estimates vary, but most credit Malcolm X's popularity with increasing the numbers of members from the high hundreds or low thousands to something like 50 or 75,000 members within 10 years. Malcolm X gave credit to Elijah Muhammad for years. He deferred to him, praised him, deflected all the glory that was coming his way, and redirected it toward the leader who I think he genu genuinely credited 
was saving him from the path he'd been on. But Elijah Muhammad had his own flaws, including what was revealed as some sexual relationships with young secretaries in the Nation of Islam, and it was maybe inevitable that supporters of Muhammad and Muhammad himself would eventually come to fear the leader who was building the wave of support, especially when Muhammad started to falter. A change in leadership from Elijah Muhammad to Malcolm X seemed possible to the point of probable. A book came out describing the nation of Islam. Elijah Muhammad was not on the cover. Malcolm X was. Muhammad did have one of his speeches printed inside the book, but Malcolm had five. Things were coming to a head, but Malcolm still had more significant events ahead of him. He made a pilgrimage to Mecca and did some other traveling around the world that gave him a broader view of humanity and of being a person of color than his American experience had done. And he began to live in fear of the nation of Islam as well as of the white racist groups and law enforcement agencies. He eventually was assassinated, one of the four assassinations that marked the 60s. His came after JFK and before Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. For Malcolm X, the assassination came in February of 1965, two days after he told an interviewer that the Nation of Islam was trying to kill him, as he had known for about a year. The autobiography of Malcolm X is so powerful as a narrative, it's hard now to separate the man from the book. Maybe we don't need to. It arose when Alex Haley, then a largely unknown journalist, conducted a series of lengthy interviews with Malcolm X. At first, Malcolm was guarded and reserved. Eventually, he opened up to Haley. Haley tells the story masterfully, as if it's Malcolm who's speaking. The honesty and candor come through. The story itself is amazing, studded with unforgettable characters, dramatic events, and Malcolm's insights and observations into how his life fit into society's patterns as a whole. At times you might think he stretches or sees things through a single lens, and at times you might disagree, but there are a lot more times when he seems to be opening a window into the real world and how it works. It's as if he's writing a narrative that's running forward as smoothly as a clock, and at the same time, he's removing the clock's face and showing you all the machinery and explaining how it all works. As a portrait of black America and America of this era, it's hard to beat. And it's hard to imagine a book having that kind of influence today. The American public who read it was, it seems from this distance, more open to learning than we are now, more opening to questioning conventional wisdom, more willing to change, and less fragmented. A television show could reach tens of millions of people. Alex Haley's other big project, Roots, is a good example of this. America had 221 million people in 1977. 130 million of them watched Roots. Malcolm X and his autobiography have come to stand for a few things. An unflinching look at race and its impact on America told from an uncompromising point of view. Groups lined up to call him an extremist, and not just white groups. Malcolm X called Martin Luther King a chump and said the civil rights movement was full of stooges. 
The march on Washington was the farce on Washington, he said. Why demonstrate in front of a statue of a white man, Abraham Lincoln, who has been dead for a hundred years and didn't like us when he was alive? Black people should stop doing this with the permission or assistance of white people. No cooperation. Black people should defend and advance themselves by any means necessary. Two things come out of this. One is the political position, a declaration, a strategy for bringing about change. The other is directed at the psychology of the oppressed person. It says, don't be weak. Don't back down. Don't accept that you have to be endlessly patient. It is extreme. Is it irresponsibly extreme? The NAACP thought so. The arc of the moral universe is long, Barack Obama used to say, quoting Martin Luther King, but it bends toward justice. We look at some measures of progress and are heartened. In 1960, 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriage. Today, that number is reversed. 96% approve. Love has won in that arena anyway. In other areas, the arc seems so long it looks like a straight line or a squiggly one, sometimes moving in the wrong direction. But that's politics. For literature, the man is the man, and the book is the book, and the book is a wonder. It's incredibly readable, as fascinating in 2022 as it must have been in 1965. And inspirational, too. You can argue with Malcolm's conclusions or prophecies or prescriptions, even as you agree with his premises and diagnoses. You can admire the man even as you question some of his methods. That's the nature of extremism. Gandhi was an extremist, too. So was Jesus. Extremes push boundaries and open spaces for us to fill. Nelson Mandela quotes Malcolm X, quote, We declare our right on this earth to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary, end quote. In the film, Malcolm X, director Spike Lee, ends the film with this quote, but he gives those last four words to Malcolm. Sometimes history gives us parallels so neat we can't avoid them, even if it risks oversimplification. In the 60s, we had two great civil rights leaders standing for two very different positions. There was Martin Luther King with his commitment to nonviolent protest, and there was Malcolm X with his by any means necessary. When Spike Lee made his film Do the Right Thing, in the late 1980s, he captured this dilemma. What is the right thing? What's the right response to police brutality? Is it to vote and suffer in silence and wait? Or is it to throw the trash can through the plate glass window? What do you do if the world isn't listening? How does nonviolence work if the oppressors have no moral core, if they view you as subhuman? It's a question we face in a lot of arenas. Whenever there is ignorance, wherever there is injustice, wherever there is oppression or harms locked into place, harms against people, harms against animals, harms against the atmosphere and the environment, how patient should we be? 
In my talk with Dr. Wingrant, I mentioned Al Gore and his statement that he's seen change happen quickly before. He said that 20-some years ago. What if we don't have that much time? What do we do? And what if the waiting is itself debilitating? What if it means we tamp down some part of ourselves, the hopeful side, or, for anyone who's oppressed, a kind of self-confidence? The flip side is you don't want to become monstrous, to lose your own moral values in the face of injustice. We say, we can't stoop to that level. We can't murder, we can't destroy, we can't become evil on our path to justice. But is there a middle ground that doesn't feel like surrender or that doesn't feel like abdicating strength, like waiting for others to be the agents of change if they come to feel like it, maybe, eventually? These are ideas that were flashpoints in the 60s and are still with us today. They didn't start in the 60s. They're as old as America and probably as old as humanity. We live by a moral code. But what if the game is rigged? What then? When it comes to oppression, it's fair to ask, how long do we wait? If the answer is several generations, we're condemning people to be oppressed for their entire lives. Can't we move faster? What can be done in the meantime? And when it comes to the environment, it's fair to ask, what if the damage is irreversible? It's a terrifying threat. Species can be lost forever. Humans will suffer. Life as we know it might not recover. Is it enough to recycle and vote and hope for change? Rachel Carson didn't think so. She was born in 1907 on a family farm near the Allegheny River in the Pittsburgh area. She grew up roaming around that farm reading the works of Beatrix Potter, good scientist there, as we saw in our episode on her, and seafaring tales by Herman Melville, Joseph Conrad, and Robert Louis Stevenson. Although Rachel was living by a river miles from the open sea, the ocean became her passion. Such is the power of literature, which has made us all fans of Sherlock Holmes's London and Harry Potter's Hogwarts and C.S. Lewis's Narnia, places we've never been. Carson was a loner, maybe because she was in middle Pennsylvania with dreams of the ocean. She ended up as a marine biologist who studied rats, pit vipers, and squirrels before finally getting the chance to work on the embryonic development of fish. After finishing her graduate studies, she began working for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries and wrote articles on marine life in the Chesapeake Bay. She had a knack for writing, and a professional ability to amass and analyze field data, which she combined for about 15 years until some books about the ocean that she wrote became so popular that she was able to quit her job and write full-time. That was in 1952. Later that decade, she became increasingly concerned with the pesticides that chemical companies had developed along with the U.S. military. They mixed DDT with fuel oil and other chemicals and sprayed it all over the place, trying to eradicate fire ants and mosquitoes and slaughtering birds in the process. What about wildlife we're not trying to kill? Rachel Carson said, what about humans? What is the impact of this pesticide on them? 
She kept researching, finding connections between chemicals and cancer and other ecological damage. And then she wrote her masterpiece. When it came time to find a title for the chapter on birds, she was inspired by a line from Keats from his poem, La Belle Dame Sans Mercy. The sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. Silent Spring, Rachel Carson wrote. Is that where we're headed? Is that what we want? Her agent said, let's call the whole book that. The book Silent Spring was criticized. Are these chemicals really all that bad? Said the chemical companies. That kettle doesn't look so black to me, said the pot. Actually, actually, it's more than that. It's, hey, I might not be as black as I look, said the black kettle. What's your proof of my blackness other than uh, photos of me and eyewitness accounts and your eyes and other so-called data? Carson, who herself developed cancer, damn it, and was growing weak, was sympathetic to some extent. She agreed that controlling pests had positive effects on growing crops and reducing insect-borne disease. She was just pointing out that spraying pesticides everywhere in unlimited extents could increase resistance of the pests to that pesticide and have other unforeseen consequences on the environment. This stuff literally is poison. It's designed to kill. It makes sense to say, spray as little as you possibly can, rather than spray to the limit of your capacity. The book Silent Spring was a hit. It ran in the New Yorker, which was then a hugely influential magazine in an age where magazines were still influential. And it was a book of the month club selection, which led to over 150,000 copies being shipped all over the country, including many homes, as Rachel Carson noted, where they had never heard of The New Yorker. Monsanto responded with a book called The Desolate Year, which described a world of famine and disease after pesticides had been banned. That book did not have either the data or the poetry of Carson's work, and it didn't have the Keatsian touch with the title. They printed 5,000 copies and had to give them away. Carson was criticized. One industry chemist said, If we follow Miss Carson, we will be in the Dark Ages, and vermin will once again inherit the earth. She's a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature, he said. No doubt a communist, said another critic. She didn't have long to live, but her legacy is almost unmatched in American environmentalism. DDT has been phased out mostly, used only in emergency circumstances. The Environmental Protection Agency was created. Multiple generations of people were raised to ask not just what was being done, but what the consequences were and would be. And not just what we were being told, but who was doing the telling. The naturalist David Attenborough was asked which book changed the scientific world the most. Charles Darwin's Origin of Species is number one, he said, and Silent Spring is number two. And now we have scientists and activists like Dr. Ray Wynne Grant moving our world forward as best she can. An inspiration to us all, thanks to her work to help save wildlife in coastal zones and other places, grizzly bears in the northern Great Plains, 
black bears in the western Great Basin, African lions in rural Kenya and Tanzania, and grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Like Rachel Carson and Malcolm X slash Alex Haley, she is also a communicator capable of reaching large audiences. She's been educated at Emory and Yale and Columbia. She's worked at the American Museum of Natural History and has been a research fellow at the National Geographic Society. The list of credentials is long and incredibly impressive. We have the inspiration here talking about two of her inspirations. Let's take our final break and hear about Dr. Ray Wingrant and her projects and her relationship with these books from the 60s. Okay, joining me now is wildlife biologist and National Geographic explorer, Dr. Ray Wingrant, who is also the host of a new PBS podcast, Going Wild. She's here today to discuss her career as an ecologist, her forthcoming book, Wildlife, and a pair of hugely influential books from the 1960s, The Autobiography of Malcolm X and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Dr. Ray Wingrant, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So one of the things I'll be interested in talking to you about is the progress or lack thereof in matters of race and science from the 1960s to today. But let's start with a bit more about your background. I think you were born in the 1980s, which has uh, (laughs) reminded me that I can have heroes who are younger than I am. But uh, (laughs) where did you grow up? Yes, I am a true millennial. Um, (laughs) I I grew up in, in several places. So I was born in San Francisco, California, and then lived in a couple parts of California as a kid. And then like right when I was becoming a teenager, my family moved to Southern Virginia. Hmm. Um, and I lived there for a while and then went off to college and <laughs> have lived in so many places since then. So the thing yeah. that's been consistent is I've mostly been in um, urban spaces and cities for my whole life. Oh, interesting. And what kind of childhood would you say that you had? Were you were you bookish? Were you uh, did you have, have a lot of friends and, and social activities? And did you have pets? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the pet question. Um, we had some pets, you know, some pets, yeah. uh, for sure. Not you know, There was one period in my life where we lived in a town rather than a big city. Mm. And that's when I really had pets. So like city life, we had, you know, a cat, we had some fish, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but those couple years in a little town, I know I had rabbits, I had guinea pigs, I mm. had pet rats for a while, I had some birds, always caged animals. So we never yeah. had a dog or anything like that. But yeah, you know, I had some pets in my life, had a, a little tiny tortoise for a bit. <laughs> yeah. So my parents were definitely open to house pets. And then was I bookish? I guess so. I guess so. Being a millennial does mean that I grew up in a time where we didn't really have devices, you Mm -hmm. know, to capture our attention. I remember that Game Boy came out when I was a kid and 
my parents let my brother and I have a Game Boy when we went on road trips. And so that was like a big treat. But other than that, we didn't have devices and my parents largely didn't let us watch TV. So so books are pretty big in my life. Yeah, I would say so. Right. Okay. So at what point did you go from this urban background mostly and decide to focus on large carnivores? Was this something that that struck you early or was it did it develop later when you were in college and so on? A little bit of both. So mm. because my parents were very strict about television, when we were able to watch it, it was only educational stuff. Ah. And so lucky for me, that included nature shows. And I just love nature and natural history shows so much. I mean, they were my favorite. And so what I would watch were like nature show hosts going off into the wilderness and looking at wild animals and explaining them and learning about them and observing them. And that just made me so excited. And so when I was a kid, I used to tell folks, I want to be a nature show host when I grow up. Yeah. And that stayed. I wanted to. So even, wow. you know, I quite, I very <laughs> much remember my very first day of college at orientation. I was doing an exercise where they asked, you know, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> my five-year plan included being a college student for four years and then on year five, becoming a nature show host. <laughs> right, right. And I didn't necessarily know how to do that, but I was like, yeah, I mean, college is important. I understand that. And I want to be a nature show host still. So yeah. I got the advice when I was there to maybe try out environmental science as a focus area. And that sounded great to me. I'd never heard of it before. But I got into environmental science. And within that, that's where I found wildlife sciences, wildlife ecology and conservation. And that was a really great fit. And I have taken that track ever since. Right. OK, so let me understand a little bit about how large carnivores fit into the picture. What does focusing on them tell us that uh, focus on insects or birds or butterflies or something like that might miss? What do we learn about the planet and the state of things? Oh, I love how you framed that question, actually, because, you know, there are so many different ways to study the environment, you mm -hmm. know, and to study like interactions in the environment. And one way is kind of bottom up, right? So like starting with insects and understanding that they are, or even like soil bacteria, like the little tiny things are kind of the foundation for all the other what we call trophic levels. But you can also do a top down, right? And so large carnivores are the apex predators, right? Large carnivores eat the herbivores, the herbivores eat the grass, the grass houses the insects and provides habitat for different birds and creates a healthy or unhealthy soil. And that influences some of the abiotic environment, like the water pathways and the rocks and all that kind of stuff. So I was because of these nature shows, always attracted to large carnivores, because that's how they hook us, right? You turn on a nature show, you're going to see a lion, you're going to see a tiger, you're going to see a shark, you know, you're going to see some big predator. And so because that was how I was introduced to nature and the outdoors, those animals were a big part of my passion. So I've always been really unapologetic about that. Yeah. I find every aspect of biodiversity and nature interesting, but I want to study the big, ferocious, large carnivores that really dominate landscapes, that hunt prey, you know, that really shape ecosystems in that way. 
Yeah. And I have. I have ever since. So it's not that we necessarily will, by studying large carnivores, introduces us to things that we might miss if we studied a different trophic level or a different species. But it's that I I had that passion already. I had that idea in my head already. And it's been super interesting. And it has also allowed my science to be very informed by society and people because people have these really strong reactions to large carnivores in a way that's different than birds or herbivores or, you know, other animals. Yeah. I didn't realize that this was controversial, but it kind of makes sense to me that it is. And I don't know if the controversy is how strong it is within science, but it does make sense to me that it's all connected and whatever window you're taking into it, you could explore what's going on one way or the other as you've explained. But my understanding is some people will say, oh, if we just focus on polar bears or koala bears or panda bears or or something that's cuddly or lions and tigers and something that's dramatic that will focus, I don't know, resources in the wrong place or will misunderstand mm. something and, and maybe not understand that the acidity in the ocean is something to really care about or, or something like that. Do you face that within science or in your mission to bring science to the people or is that kind of an overblown, have I over-exaggerated the importance of that controversy? I would say it, you're right that it's controversial. And the reason it is, is because we're in such a mission critical space, mm. right? Like there's a lot of urgency to yeah. what needs attention. Like if our environment as a whole was doing great, then it would be totally fine to get people super interested and jazzed about pandas, right? But because we have some urgent needs that may or may not ultimately <laughs> destroy us, yeah. there is a lot of pressure to kind of do that triage work. Let's focus on the thing that is the most important to wrangle right now. And and then that, that can be tough, right? Because then we find scientists or society creating arguments about like, well, is this big, charismatic, wonderful species actually necessary mm. on this planet or not? That's an uncomfortable debate to have, Oof. right? Yeah. But there is some stuff that we can completely agree on, right? Like soil bacteria makes the world go round. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Dung beetles are essential for this planet to continue functioning, right? They're not you know, bacteria, beetles, like they're not the charismatic, wonderful animals that you want to throw your donation dollars to, but they are essential for us to protect. And at the same time, all of these species were put on this planet for a reason and play a role in the environment and ecosystem functioning. Things are not easy. Things are complicated. Things are urgent. Things are a bit messy. But I feel fortunate that the carnivores that I study are largely in spaces where they interact with humans at some level. And so although I might be studying bears in North America, the information that I'm gaining about them can hopefully inform conservation of other large carnivores in other areas where they interact with people, right? So we can make these really broad conclusions that might be useful in other parts of the world. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, things that are urgent and complicated and sometimes messy, let's turn to Malcolm X, who <laughs> was writing from that kind of a position. When did you first encounter the book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X? Oh my gosh. I think the first time I probably encountered the book 
in a way that I really recall was in middle school or mm. high school. I think middle mm-hmm. school. I went to regular public schools and it was required reading. And I remember having a class, an English class, probably in seventh grade or eighth grade, where we we were required to read a chapter of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it was one of the earlier chapters before he was Malcolm X, the civil rights leader. It was a chapter about him experimenting with his hairstyle. Oh, yeah. And a chapter where he um, essentially gets what we call now a relaxer, and it turns his kinky hair straight. And that was like part of a trend that was going on. But it also was a trend in the late 90s, early 2000s at the time, like I had a relaxer at that time. And the idea is to like change the texture of black hair to make it more, uh, to make it straight, which there's a lot of reasons why one might do that. But one of the reasons might be to take on a more white centered appearance, right? To like move yourself more towards that white standard of beauty. That might be a reason why someone does it. Yeah. And that was a chapter we read And I remember that it wasn't very profound. I mean, I honestly remember reading it as a black person with a relaxer and kind of being like, yeah, well, that's what it's like. So that, you know, in the story, he details how painful it was, right? Like it literally was chemicals burning his scalp. And he didn't realize it would be so painful. He didn't realize that he would feel fire on his head and it would be this horrible, toxic chemical experience. And that really changes his thoughts of the steps so many Black folks were taking towards looking more acceptable in white society or looking more acceptable to white society. And I remember reading it and, you know, kind of being like, oh, yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, sure. (laughs) When I reflect back on it, I remember thinking like, I guess this is informative to my white classmates who have never had these chemicals on their hair, who've never changed their hair texture to reach a white standard of beauty because they already have it. But it didn't make a big impact on me. With that said, I brought the book home, right? Because reading it was homework. And bringing the book home sparked a whole conversation with my parents, right? Who grew up with Malcolm X, who had, like, were very impressed by the fact that we were reading it. And even more, it reminded me that I did have a sense of who this man was and his power because there was a movie that came out in the early 90s called Malcolm X and Denzel Washington played Malcolm X. I know. I just rewatched it. Denzel is so young in the movie. Oh, so young. I mean, a phenomenal performance. Like, he was robbed at the Academy Awards. You know, like, absolutely, that was an Oscar-worthy performance. I mean, amazing, amazing. It's chilling. It's if if anybody is if they only know Denzel maybe from the last few years or something they really should watch that movie mm-hmm. and that performance. Mm-hmm. He is so electric and, mm-hmm. and magnetic and I hadn't really watched it since it came out in the theaters, but I watched it uh, last weekend and it is so good and so much fun to watch him. He's just ah, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. he's riveting. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, I I am in no way an actor, but it just seems like that's acting. (laughs) Like if you looked up like acting in the, you know, dictionary, it would be that example of his performance in that film. It's unreal. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess it's unreal in that it seems so real. It just seems like he is this real person in real life. It's so convincing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember my parents 
watching that movie, not in the theaters. You know, I remember them renting it in the early 90s at home, and I was too young to watch it. They were very strict about what's rated R and what's appropriate for kids. You know, so I remember kind of knowing my parents were watching this movie, you know, kind of being upstairs and like hearing some of it from my bedroom (laughs) when they were watching it at night and I should have been asleep. You know, I remember seeing Denzel Washington and... I guess for a long time, not realizing that they were different people because they looked so alike, you know, yeah. in that film. Yep. So I, so, so bringing home the autobiography of Malcolm X sparked this whole conversation with my parents. And although my homework was to only read the chapter about hair, my parents were able to really just download to me a lot of information and their very personal take on things. Mm. And, you know, and at this time and where I was, I mean, I remember I was living in southeastern Virginia. He wasn't in in school and everything like he wasn't leaned into as the hero that maybe someone like Martin Luther King was. Mm-hmm. And my parents really brought this alternative perspective to me about how in school, at least like in this narrative I was getting at school, there was an emphasis on his willingness to use violence to get towards civil rights and how that violence is bad. (laughs) And my parents were were very much able to give me this richer, deeper perspective. Yeah, that was a perspective that I think is adopted more widely today, as we're talking about it today, that his approach to civil rights leadership was very, very brave, and very, very useful and very, very empowering to black folks, and likely one of the reasons why things got pushed and my parents were able to really help me see that we don't, there's not like sides. You don't take sides. Are you like team MLK or team Malcolm X? You know, that was kind of how it was articulated in school at the time. And, and they really were able to give me like a really a great fullness. And I think my mom encouraged me to read the whole book, which I did not do at that time, but later in my life really dove into his autobiography. It is such a good book. I, Again, I read it like you did in middle school, which would have been, I guess, in the 80s and took some things from it. But really rereading it now, I was so struck. And we've been I mean, we gave we gave the the movie so much praise. I don't want anyone to think that they can take a shortcut and just watch the movie, although it's worth watching the movie for sure. But the book is so is so readable. I don't know how much of that is. I'm sure a lot of it is because of Malcolm X's story and what he told, but I want to give Alex Haley credit too. It is such a readable narrative. And so uh, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't put it down. But what you were saying about the more nuanced idea that we kind of have inherited this idea of, well, if you think things should be done through nonviolence, that's MLK. And if you think things, you know, Mm -hmm. call for more urgent action, including violence, that's Malcolm X. And I felt like my edition of the book came with the eulogy that Ossie Davis had given, where he talked about Mm. the importance of Malcolm X just to basically take positions and to be kind of uncompromising about some basic assertions of Mm -hmm. here I am, I am a person, here I am, I am a human being, and I am a man, and just... It seems like it was very important to Ossie Davis at the time, and it raised a question for me when it comes to you, because I'm sure you've faced a lot of uh, obstacles in your path as you've gone into a field that 
traditionally has been closed to women and people of color and whether it's conscious or unconscious bias. But it seems like one approach you could take would be to say, well, I'll just do the work and let the science speak for itself. And Mm -hmm. there's objectivity to science. And then another approach would be to say, no, you have to call it out and, and you should call it out each and every time. But it seems to me that if you do that, you might be labeled angry and aggressive and that can work against you, especially for women. So have you, did you feel like Malcolm X and reading the autobiography of Malcolm X gave you any kind of uh, guidance as to what you should do or has it helped at all in that sense? Oh my goodness. Wow. You know, it's so interesting because I, I chose this book to talk about and knowing it would be in the context of like my work and my career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there aren't, there aren't obvious intersections here, mm. but I would say that, that learning about Malcolm X, especially from this book, allowed me to feel a sense of courage. Mm. You know, it's a great example of a very, very courageous person. Yeah. And it also, you know, and, and I don't want to sound like I, I don't have hope, but It also maybe helped me be realistic Mm. to know that sometimes courage doesn't triumph, right? Sometimes bravery and courage and justice doesn't ultimately win, right? Like he, Mm -hmm. he didn't, he didn't live, you know, he was assassinated as were so many civil rights leaders. And, and not to say that we're out here assassinating civil rights leaders left and right today, although you know, arguably, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe there are some ways that his teachings and his book helped me understand when I faced rejection, right? Mm. So, so let me back that up. I do believe that science is neutral. I really do. You know, f- for the most case, I believe data collection is right. neutral enough. I think science is to uncover the truth that whether the truth is something you believe in or not. I'll give an example. Laws about wild animals are built around data, ideally. (laughs) Like when when it's working the right way, there's data that informs, you know, laws and policy. And sometimes the data I collect on, say, bears or something will influence a decision about hunting bears. Maybe my data says, actually, there's plenty of bears in this area. If you hunt some, the population will still be okay. That goes against my beliefs on hunting. But I am presenting data that is neutral, right? And that is my job. So I, you know, in that way, I believe that science is neutral, is is not political, is used to really find truth. However, scientists are not neutral. And scientists can be political beings or can be politicized, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. especially in America, in the past or today, if you are a scientist from a target group, your whole life is political. Your whole life is not neutral. If you're a scientist who is an immigrant, a scientist who is Muslim, a scientist who is black or brown or indigenous, a scientist from the LGBTIQ community, right? Your being is not neutral. (laughs) There may be political warfare being waged on your community, including yourself. And so although you may have the ability to collect data and kind of isolate that, like as an intersectional person, that shows up. And so what I have found is 
in a lot of my science work and especially my science communication, I have really maybe taken a, a hint of the courage from Malcolm X and insisted that the science community value scientists as much as they value science. Hmm. So the former presidential administration, that was a tough one for me to live through. There were marches, you know, there were women's marches and there were marches for science. And I saw so many of my colleagues marching for science and some of them going out to women's marches, which was really important. But when it came to a march for black lives, everyone would be in the office that day. And that was really, really tough. And I began really calling it out, saying, if you believe science is important, you have to believe that your fellow scientists are important. Mm. If there is incredibly unjust forces working against your fellow scientists, or I'm from the black community, so awful police brutality, you know, is going on that's killing us, you got to show up for that too. <laughs> yeah. And so that's where I both have taken pieces from Malcolm X's assertive presence and non-compromising platform and also have kind of tempered that with realistic expectations, which makes me sad, but it's, it's shown up in my life. I have been wounded. I have suffered very real professional costs for including social justice advocacy in my science communication, mm. because it can be intimidating and threatening to organizations and scientists and institutions that really want to stay in that comfort zone of thinking that because science is neutral, if you're a scientist, you're also neutral. <laughs> Mm. And I'm, I really am trying to break that idea apart because it's toxic and it's really causing a lot of harm. Yeah. It seems like you are probably a real pioneer there. And do you feel like you and your generation are moving that forward or do you feel all alone or? Oh, goodness. So not all alone. Thank you for calling me a pioneer. I I am so fortunate to have a bit of a platform these mm -hmm. days. But I'll be honest with you, I didn't have an articulation for the feelings inside of me until I met and was inspired by other people, predominantly mm. black women who are slightly younger than me. Mm. There are wow. people like, I'll just name some of them, Cynthia Malone and Asia Murphy and Leah Thomas and some really amazing, slightly younger individuals who were able to articulate the intersections of social justice and science and environmental wellness so much better. And when I was able to listen to them and learn from them and contemplate some of these philosophies, I, you know, it very much matched what I had struggled with. So it was like I like struggled, you know, I went through all these degrees and so much academia and learned science in this kind of sterile, traditional, arguably neocolonial way. And then had the opportunity to become close with some of these young women who took the words out of my mouth and said it better. And I have been able to join in and emphasize and amplify and, and make mistakes along the way and get it wrong sometimes and suffer consequences sometimes even when I wasn't wrong. <laughs> mm. But I, I'm not alone. 
I'm not alone. And I have been educated by some phenomenally fierce, brilliant scholars and activists. And I'm super, super grateful for their presence in my life. That's wonderful. I, You know, Malcolm X had said in the book that the only hope we have are the young people because they're the ones who haven't been living the lie. And young whites and blacks, too, are the only hope that we have, I think was his quote. And in some ways, I you know, that always comes with, with hope and promise, but it also makes it seem like we're forever condemned to just waiting for the future and kicking the can down the road. I'm Generation X, and mm-hmm. we have never been able to get out of the boomers' shadows, and I feel like mm-hmm. we haven't mm-hmm. really been able to put our stamp on anything, and we haven't made much better. But I do have this sort of secret hope that we have been raising kids who are mm-hmm. <laughs> who are going <laughs> to step up and the job that we've done in kind of uh, raising them, not in that dilemma of the 60s and reliving some of those fights, but teaching them the values that we've been giving them that we have kind of forged for ourselves, that hopefully there's some possibilities there. And it sounds like maybe you've met a few of the people who uh, who have Gen X parents. Yeah, I have. And I guess I agree partially with that statement from Malcolm, you know, that our only hope is is the young whites. Like, I definitely think that when it comes to combating racism and like most of kind of injustice we see in this world, it, it's a white thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like of course. white people yeah. invented racism right? Right. <laughs> and they perpetuate it. And so, and I'll use black folks as an example, like if we could end racism, we would have done that a long time ago. Like it's in our best interest and it affects all of us and we would have been done with it, but we can't. Like it has to be, it's a, it's a power structure and system and it has to be dismantled by those who created it in the first place and who benefit from it. So I definitely agree. White people have the power to end structural racism, yeah. which in turn impacts the environment. <laughs> yeah. And so please take it away. I think we were all really encouraged by so much movement that took place in 2020 lockdown. There was a there was a summer, you know, after several high profile murders of black men where folks, uh, white folks in particular, became more vocal about their intent to participate in anti-racism work. And we'll see. I'm, I'm really hopeful. Like, I, I'm definitely an optimist. Sometimes I get these reality checks that might make me waver a little bit. But I, I really think that I don't necessarily think that onus is on younger generations. But yeah. I do think that we as a at least American society are getting to a place where where more people are at least able to acknowledge yeah. need for some changes. And, and I've seen a lot of progress in my life. But you know, Malcolm X has that amazing, amazing statement that he made. And I hope I don't butcher it. But he talks about the word progress. Hmm. And he says, if you stab me in the back with a 10 inch blade and you pull it out five inches. Is that progress? Mm, Yeah. And that's really how I feel. He also had this passage that really struck me in this last reread I had of the book where it's actually in Alex Haley's epilogue. And he talks about how he he kind of talks about the history of of writing this book and how stiff Malcolm X was at the beginning when he was doing his interviews and everything. And he said he finally got him to open up by asking him about his mother. And mm-hmm. later, Malcolm X came to him and said, you know, I realized 
that I had shut her out of my thoughts. The pain of having her locked up in a mental institution for 20 some years Mm -hmm. just made me close it out of my mind. And then he said, I had to face something about myself. I didn't feel like anything could be done. And it was so painful that I just pretended it didn't exist. And then he says, this is what white people do about racism. They Mm -hmm. find all kinds of ways to block it out, to minimize it or pretend it isn't happening or that it's somebody else's problem to deal with. And it made it seem like it is very human for even well-intentioned people to basically not want to look it square in the face and acknowledge it because it's so hard and it's so painful and it's impossible to fix. So it's easier to just sort of pretend like, well, maybe, you know, that's all in our past or that's not relevant now or that kind of thing. Uh, I know we want to talk about Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. It seems like that's applicable to climate change and ecology as well. This idea of, well, if the problem is so big, let's just minimize its importance or say, well, it's it's not anything man-made or uh, let's just focus on other things. And Silent Spring is a book that kind of shocked the country into waking up and realizing that there was a real problem. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. were you in college when you read Silent Spring? Oh, my gosh. When did I read Silent Spring? I I didn't read it in college. I honestly didn't. I think I should have, you know, when I started studying environmental science in college, that title was often thrown out as if everyone kind of knew about it, like as if everyone had read it, you know, it was like reference. Right. Know? It's like everything changed, right? right. It's like, like there's oh, a yeah, before and after. Yeah. Silent <laughs> right. Spring was like the cultural marker of everyone thought one way and then everyone suddenly woke up and mm-hmm. thought a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's such a legend of a piece, you know, and I did eventually read it. I remember reading it actually when I was doing fieldwork. So once I was starting my own fieldwork and I would be in the field for weeks, if not months on end. And I did a lot of reading. I read Silent Spring and reading a book like that at the time that I read it, it was meaningful, but not necessarily super impactful. Right. So at the time I read it, it was more like preaching to the choir. Mm. And I felt like I read it more as support, you know, like, oh, I'm yeah, kind of yeah. giving Rachel Carson my support here. Like, I believe in what she's saying, and this is important, and she's a hero of mine. But it wasn't full of information that I didn't know, you right. know, or needed to be convinced of the way it would have been for so many folks reading it in the 60s. Yeah. So one of the things that I love that I sometimes circle back to, especially when I teach college students these days, is that It is possible for us as a society to tackle some major environmental issues, right? Like, so there's a lot that's overwhelming and there's a lot of environmental issues, especially today, that just seem so big, they might be impossible for us to combat. But pesticides in the environment and particularly the impact on birds is something that at some point seemed like we were on like a roller coaster that was out of control And yet we as an American society did a great job of tackling it and making changes and bringing some of our iconic birds off of the endangered species list. And, you know, Silent Spring played a huge role in that by sparking some advocacy and doing some education. But it was also possible for corporations, big capitalist machines to make changes Mm. that protected our environment. And knowing that that is possible and that we can see results within a couple of years, mm-hmm. 
again, makes me feel hopeful that we can do it again. You know, it's like yeah. there's a cost, there's a monetary cost that goes against capitalist goals for these corporations. But it's been done. It's better for everyone and it can continue to be done. Yeah. Al Gore used to say that all the time. Oh, change can happen fast. I've seen it happen. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was 20 years ago, so it, it hasn't been mm -hmm. that fast. But it does feel like you can get on these tipping points. And I keep reading these news articles about solar panels and about electric vehicles and, and just mm -hmm. feels like once we get over that hump and things start going downhill that you could just see how it could all happen very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be a doubter, but I'll, I'll like, I'll <laughs> sprinkle this little, you know, tidbit in that I have a really fun digital series coming out on PBS SoCal and it'll be on PBS SoCal's YouTube called Stop Saving the Planet. And it gives us all this information about how some of the things that we think are the answer mm. are not the answer. Oh, no. <laughs> Including electric vehicles. Because <laughs> I honestly, before I did the research for this series, I was, you know, totally on that bandwagon thinking like, yes, this is the right move. And it's still probably the better choice. You know, if you if it's possible for you to choose between a gas car and an electric vehicle, yeah. it's probably better. To choose the electric vehicle, but not by much. And so there's actually like additional innovation that we need to make it a better choice. Ultimately. Uh, right. Is the main problem that we currently are source of electricity that you'd be using to charge up the car is basically not a environmentally friendly source. Right. It's like fossil fuels yeah, <laughs> that produce yeah. our electricity a lot of the time. But it's also things like the batteries, right? Like these mm. batteries that use these elements like lithium that come from mining the earth and really destroying tons and tons of really important earth and habitat that also have huge social welfare costs to the people that are doing the mining. It's actually it's just it's terrible for the environment to build the electric car. Hmm. And so that that is really troubling and needs and and needs to be fixed, but also can be fixed, you know, so like trying to offer right. this hope that someone, an engineer, jump in there, figure out how to make the early parts of the electric vehicle more sustainable so that folks can feel really good about their purchase. So yeah. there's there's solutions. Sometimes we're out here highlighting problems, but there are definitely, definitely innovations and solutions that can make all of this work. Well, that's where I worry a little bit about big companies being involved. On the one hand, things aren't really going to happen unless it's the biggest companies are all on board and are also pushing to make it happen. But I don't really trust them to necessarily do the right thing. I think they mm -hmm. will will do what's best for the bottom line. And if they see profits to be made going down the wrong path, I'm not sure we're going to be able to swerve them in a different direction. But I guess that's the job of people like you to educate the rest of us. And hopefully the political system can put some guardrails in and do some some steering. But is this part of what you're hoping to accomplish with your new podcast? Or is that aimed at a different audience? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I am always interested in not just educating, but empowering people, mm. right? Because mm -hmm. really, you know, consumers have a lot of power against corporations, right? And communities have a lot of power against policies and political structures. And so really, if we as a people, whatever 
group of people we are are properly educated and empowered, we can work together to demand solutions, right? Which kind of marries like the Malcolm X and the Rachel Carson idea. You know, mm-hmm. we can we can work together to demand something better for all of us. Now, when it comes to my podcast, it's for all audiences. It is for absolutely everyone. I'm so proud of this show. Mm. It's called Going Wild with Raywin Grant. It's um, by PPS Nature, but can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. um, you can find it. And it is true stories from my life in the wilderness. So season one is all of my stories that are, I, I mean, I honestly think they're pretty mind blowing. Like if they had happened to someone else, I would barely believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but true stories from my life in the wilderness, tracking bears and lions and chasing lemurs through rainforests and traveling around the world, you know, living in the outdoors, like having cross-cultural experiences, getting things wrong, almost dying, being chased by carnivores. I mean, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's fun. And one of the things I love the most, and I'm just so pleased that PBS was willing to do, is to allow me to create a really intersectional approach for the stories, right? Mm-hmm. So it centers me as a wildlife ecologist doing crazy badass stuff, but there's along with those wildlife journeys is a mental emotional journey, a self-confidence journey, you know, a romantic love journey, whatever it is, a social justice kind of consciousness journey. And that's included in the stories too. So there's a lot of like drama, there's a lot of human drama along with amazing, you know, wildlife stories. And then for season two, I have tapped some of my favorite wildlife ecologists who are all black individuals out here to tell their stories about hyenas, about, um, you know, mountain lions, about leopards, about coyotes, about lizards, about sharks. Um, Some of the most amazing scientists out there today who talk about their craziest story from the field. And at the same time, their intersection, like the intersection of their identity and how that plays into that story. Mm. And I don't want to give anything away, but there's a lot of discussion about different societal issues as we talk about coyotes. You know, so we're talking about coyotes, we're talking about school shootings, and we're talking about, you know, hyenas, or we're talking about colorism, and we're talking about lizards, and we're talking about the power of Twitter. <laughs> there's so much in there that is so unique and really, really special. And it's it's a show that I'm so proud of. And it's fun. So we get a lot of feedback. People tell us it's fun. People play it in the car with their kids. The fans are really fanning out over this podcast. And I'm just so honored to have worked with such a great team. Oh, you must be getting feedback that it is empowering to people who are uh, listening to it and thinking that if you can do it, they can do it. And whether that means people are going to follow your path into the field of science, but it might be another field where they feel like it's underrepresented, but they feel inspired by your example. Yeah, yeah. One of the most recent bits of feedback I just got from the podcast that I got today was that it allowed me and my guests to be relatable. You know, because sometimes there's someone that you like in your field that you idolize where you're like, oh, that person's made it like they've made it to the top. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're doing Mm -hmm. great. They're successful. They're visible. I want to be like them. 
but I have no idea if I'll have the same kind of luck or experience along the way or whatever. And so in my in my podcast, you know, I, I really talk about ways that I have humiliated myself and in mostly funny ways, but, you know, ways that I've just had to start over and learn, totally mess up and it, the exact process that happened along the way. Or a lot of my guests talk about misunderstandings or missteps or scary moments or really like silly silly things that they did on the side that ended up being like critical part of their career. So so because we take this intersectional approach, you know, everyone's a wildlife ecologist, but we're also millennials or Gen Z or parents or children mm, <laughs> ourselves yeah. or people really interested in martial arts or people really interested in beer or, you know, whatever it is, we're bringing our full selves to this so that we're hoping that Although we're all successful in our fields, people can really see themselves in it and can relate to some part of the story or some part of the identity. And it's a great way to humanize everyone, um, to to rally everyone together around a cause and to just properly understand who our heroes are and what they deal with. Mm. So it's not the Dr. Ray Wynn Grants of the world are the superheroes who are going to come in and fix everything because they're infallible geniuses who <laughs> will have all the right answers, but because she is also a human that I, as a human, can pitch in and help to the best of my poor abilities as well. Uh, you know, a hundred percent. If you listen to season <laughs> one of my podcast, I talk about peeing on myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in real life. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I, I mean, we like bring it all the way down. And I also talk about being discriminated against in ways that are completely unfair. And I also talk about wonderful, amazing achievements in finding endangered species that we didn't know existed. So there's just, there's a lot there. But yeah, it definitely shows that the breadth of who is involved, what does success actually look like, you know, how much teamwork matters, you know, and also how much things like mental health matter. Mm. You know, if you're in a field like this, I mean, even I think all of my guests on season two touch on this. If you're in this mission driven field where we're trying to like help the world, you know, make the whole earth a little bit healthier and more balanced, you can't do that if you're not taking good care of yourself. And so we have this strong emphasis on mental health and, and balance and self-care as well. And I think that comes as a surprise to a lot of listeners that there's this message of how did I realize the role that self-care played in in my career? And sometimes in the field doing some badass work, you realize like, oh, I could use a therapist. <laughs> so, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there. It's full of surprises. It's mostly an adventure. And I can't wait for everyone to listen. Mm, well, I can't wait to listen myself. Dr. Ray Wingrant, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kitten Rescuers and Big Cat Rescuers, to listener Hannah being an example of the former, and our guest, Dr. Ray Wingrant, exemplifying the latter. I feel inspired. I've been a little under the weather lately, but I'm coming out from under the heaviness and the fatigue and feeling good about my chances, about the world's chances. I'm glad we have people like Dr. Wynne Grant on our planet, and I'm glad we have people like you, dear listeners. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us. 
and we'll see you next time.